0: Welcome to the intersection of technology, cybersecurity and society. Welcome to ITSP Magazine. Join us on our journey into the past, the present and the future as we explore the relationship between technology and humanity. Together, we are going to find out what it means to live in a society where everything is connected and the only constant is change. Knowledge is power. Now, more than ever. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at nintex.com. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at BlueLava.net. Marco. Sean, are
1: you spying on me? I'm spying on you. I know where you are. As does our guest and everybody else listening to this.
2: Okay. I'm cool with that, but you're doing it in a moral way or are you doing it in an immoral
1: way? i'm I'm illegally ethical. <laughs> <with it.
2: laughs> All right. Uh, I love when you we start the conversation that we confuse each other and of course we're confusing the audience. And uh I think it's our signature. I don't
1: know if people like it, but we're going with it, right? Uh, who knows? And I'm always confused anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> what they get. But, uh, yeah, we're we've talked about this conversation or had this conversation a number of times, different angles, different perspectives. Uh, we're We're getting an, another one here today, A perspective from Europe, but looking globally as well, and an author of a book. And uh, that's Kevin McNish joining us today. He's the author of, the ethics of surveillance. Kevin, thanks so much for joining us.
0: Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure.
2: Yeah, so you can tell we're very confused. And uh, Sean is right. We had uh, many of these conversation with different experts. Some are more tech people, some are more uh, philosophers, some are everyday people. I mean, we're not going to tell the story again, but one of this interesting conversation happened in a with a uh, taxi, a cab driver in, uh, in Singapore. And I, I found it was very, very interesting because, of course, it was as candid as it could. We were just going back to the airport. Uh, but uh, let's... We, was he? We don't know. Oh, maybe it was... <laughs> was he
1: controlled to say that? Maybe he was the know.
2: one that was playing with us. Yes. Twist. <laughs> anyway, let's, uh, let's introduce, uh, Kevin, yourself to the audience. And, of course, nobody's going to do that better than yourself feel free to lie as much as you
0: like (laughs) so thank you marco yeah so i'm kevin mcnish i um Oh, uh, currently, I work as a digital ethics consultant for a company called Sopra But until quite recently, I was a professor of ethics and IT at the University of Twente in the Netherlands. And before that, um, I was working at the University of Leeds, also in ethics and IT. So the book which you mentioned came out of the research I was doing for my PhD, which I got in 2013, looking at the ethics of surveillance. And I think the the motivating factor for me in going into that PhD was was saying, uh, as, as you've already been hinting, that on one hand, there are cases where surveillance seems to be obviously justified, as, for instance, when the police want to tap the phone of a suspected serial killer. And yet there are other cases where surveillance is clearly not justified. So, for instance, I grew up in West Berlin in the 1970s and 80s, looking over the wall at east berlin uh, where every phone call was monitored everybody's activities were monitored all the time and so i think my motivating question throughout my research was what is it that makes the difference when is it that surveillance can be justified and when is it that it can't be
1: yeah it's a complex question with maybe multiple answers i don't know and we're going to start off with just kind of your view on what are ethics. What makes something ethical? Um, Is it because the government says it's okay? Is it because the people are okay with it? Is it because somebody can make a lot of money from it? (laughs) Or (laughs) because they can? Maybe it's not? I don't know. uh...
2: While you go there, tell us about the meaning
0: of life, too. (laughs) We're kind of in that realm. That's a different branch of philosophy. So. At heart, I see ethics as a a word that's interchangeable with morality. Uh, Some people see a difference. I don't. For me, ethics comes from the Greek and morality comes from the Latin. That's the only real difference between them. And in both cases, they're really looking at what is right. What is the right thing to do in a situation? But that is... As as you've already alluded, really quite hard to determine uh, in a lot of cases. There are some cases, like murder, um, where it's obviously not that hard to tell what is the right thing to do. Um, But there are cases where it is much more tricky to work out what we should do. And so, what ethics does is look at the reasons that we give what are the justifications that we have for doing certain actions? And what should we do as we look ahead to certain cases? What should be done in some of these cases? Now, you are sure whether that's the same as as the government telling us it's the right thing to do. Uh, That's not the case. There are plenty of cases where governments have told people to do things which are clearly unethical, such as apartheid South Africa or Nazi Germany, uh, where the laws that have been passed by the government clearly are unethical. Um, And there are cases where some things are unethical but are not illegal, such as telling a lie um there are no laws against that by and large obviously if you tell a lie in court that's that's illegal but um but if i lied to you about my age now for instance nobody's going to come and arrest me over that and then the question about whether whether ethics boils down to what people believe um there's a degree to which that's how we treat it in practice but if that were all that ethics were then it would make progress in ethics Virtually impossible because as soon as you went against what the population what the majority think you would be by definition in the wrong And so when people started arguing that slavery was wrong, even though the majority of society thought slavery was right The people argue advocating for change would have literally been wrong to do so Because they would have been arguing against the majority so there there's got to be more to ethics than just this is what the majority of people believe because Certainly, in the light of history, we tend to think that the majority can get it wrong,
2: and that wouldn't be a one-time thing. <laughs> we we have seen the majority, uh, maybe not the majority of the uh, world population, but the majority of a country to get it wrong for a certain period of time. And and again, you know, what, what's wrong was right. I sometimes I wonder if we go on a different planet, it's like talking about uh, life, right? Like, For us, it's normal to stand on two feet and breathe oxygen and air, but maybe it's completely different somewhere else. But this said, we are on the same planet. We're living together. So how are we going to work that out? Um, What I would like to do, as as much as I'm fascinated by the whole history and philosophy of it, let's jump into the modern time, and many times we hear, especially with the advent of Artificial intelligence and machine learning and giving the power to algorithm to make decision for ourself. Um We're already there in a way, so we, we better get <laughs> understanding of it. And all of a sudden, morality, the moral compass become uh, more applied to the everyday life uh, when people maybe never thought about it. So how, how do we do that? Uh, Go over that hump of technology and morality.
0: That's kind of the sixty-four million dollar question, isn't it? How, <laughs> how do we do that right now? I think if you could answer that one in a nutshell, then uh, you'd be very rich. Don't it. um, it, it's, it's certainly not straightforward, and and the problem, as you as you correctly said, Marco, I think is that we are with, with machine learning. We're creating machines that make decisions for us for the first time. And in a way, that's the the crux that's come with technological development in recent years. We've now got to scenarios where the human steps back and the machine is the thing which makes that decision, whether it's whether you should be hired, whether you should be put on parole, um, whether maybe even whether or not you should be tried and found guilty of a particular crime, whether you're going to vote Democrat or Republican. A lot of these decisions are increasingly being made by computers without human intervention. And uh, and there are obvious and serious ramifications that comes from that. And so I think we are, we're now thrust into a situation which until recently, you know, the, the concept of AI, what was meant by AI, even 20 years ago, it was so radically different from what we now treat uh, as being AI. The, the notion of machine learning through advanced data set analytics and whatever else is not something that we were genuinely thinking of as being AI 20 years ago. And as a result of that, I think a lot of the ethical dilemmas which have which are dominating the scene at the moment, just a lot of them just weren't foreseen. Some of them clearly were, such as questions about employment, um, but questions about personal data uh, I think have come somewhat out of the blue in that regard.
1: yeah, and I know we're 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 a bit broader than just surveillance at the moment and maybe'll mm. maybe we'll, maybe we will dig down into there eventually. <laughs> but, but I want to stay a high level just for another moment and because you said a word earlier, situation. and I'm wondering we have this broad stroke of we we know murder is bad, killing someone not good. Regardless of the of the situation, now legally there might be some some fine lines on what that looks like, but killing someone is bad. Uh, given the the broad scope of of privacy and surveillance and and technology, and using information and in our our private information uh, for something ethically or versus not, how? Is it really, going to be, is it going to be, it because it's so complex, is it going to be more situational and less broad stroke? This is good, this is bad?
0: Yeah, I think that that's definitely the case. I, I mean, again, I would just say, if it when it's obvious, it's obvious. Um, we almost don't even think of it as being ethics. Uh, I, I think that, you know, the the idea that we would discuss safety as an ethical issue just seems bizarre to us today. Of course, a vehicle should be safe. Of course, aeroplanes should be safe. But um, earlier in the 20th century, the, the notion of safety was seen as a a payoff, a trade-off with other things. And so that was seen as, you know, how much do we value safety? And I think we're now having that same conversation around privacy. How much do we value privacy? Um, how important is it? And as you say, with the situational element, I think it's interesting that... Throughout history and across the globe privacy seems to be something which is universal to humans I think we all care about privacy at all. Yeah in all cases What where it differs is what we consider to be private and what we think is important to be kept private so uh, You can look at Classically the way people dress on the beach for instance and the way that has changed over the centuries So in 18th century, early 19th century, Britain people used to bathe naked on the beach and that was just standard then with the introduction of the railway the trains took people from the cities to the beaches and and this is particularly british history uh there was a tremendous amount of victorian shock at seeing people bathing nude and so they insisted no people needed to wear full bathing costumes which men and women went from your ankles up to your neck down to your wrists and you were fully covered and that was how people bathed and then of course through the late you know, into the early 20th century it got smaller and smaller, the amount that was covered until by the the 50s and 60s you get the bikini and you get speedos and other various sort of fashion faux pas, Um, until people are, you know, people are seen as a bit weird now even if they dress too much. Um, Particularly in Europe we've had... Uh, debates in the last 10 years about um, Muslim women who want to cover up when they're on the beach and almost saying that's wrong that you're covering up and so we're seeing this sort of massive wave move between what it's always considered important that you hold some of your body to be private but over the years what we consider important to be held private changes
2: Usually it comes down to what, what I do is right and what you do is wrong. So you should <laughs> listen to what I do. <laughs> and that's where the cultures come in. And uh, that lack of understanding that in this global village we live in, we, we should still retain our difference because that's who we are. So let, let's go back into the surveillance issue because it, it's, it's definitely something we can pinpoint to, again, technology, where we usually try to make this connection on ITSP Magazine. So uh, we got our phone, we got our GPS tracking system, we got uh, tracking for COVID, we got tracking for one thing and another, we want to know the street the, the, the route and the direction to go from one place to another. And, uh, and we want a personal assistant in the house in the form of a speaker that I'm looking at right now. I hope she doesn't t- start talking. But at the same time, we want all this technology to help us and know who we are so that they can give us the service that we require. But we don't want them to know. And there is that trade-off that is always present there as, as you start. So how, how do we human position ourselves into that? And and how we how do you see the evolution of this going? As you mm-hmm. say, in the past, the perception was different. And then this we can apply more to surveillance as well. Like what is acceptable?
0: Yeah, thank you. That's a really interesting question. I, I think w- one thing which struck me as very strange, but also quite telling about two years ago, was the revelation that those smart speakers that you reference um are uh, the, the the commands you give to those smart speakers are also being heard by humans and that led to a, a large response certainly in the uk uh, and I, I believe elsewhere with people saying well this is an invasion of my privacy and you shouldn't be doing this Uh, And as a result of that, various privacy uh, policies were then put in place by those companies. And I I won't give any of the trigger words for obvious reasons. Um, But um, so so the telling thing there to me was that the privacy invasion did not come from the smart speaker recording your conversation, but from the human hearing your conversation. Because we know the smart speaker records the conversation because that's how it operates. So... um, yeah, it doesn't take two minutes to think about it before saying, well, of course, it, it's recording what I'm saying, at least and holding it at least for some some area. So I think as regards the the sort of acceptable surveillance approach to it, I think that um, the less human oversight and interaction of it there is, the more people are going to feel comfortable and going to feel that their privacy has not been invaded. But then you then have a question of, well, what happens to the data? Um, all of these data which are being collected. And I think then you get into this question about data control and respecting people's data, which I see is slightly different from being a privacy issue. I see data control as being a separate question. They overlap a little bit, but not significantly uh, to me. There are enough cases where data control does not involve privacy. Um, and so i think that's the key question for these smart speakers and for a lot of the tech which as you say we want to be um tailored towards us we want this high-end personalized service from our from our tech devices Nicholas negroponte made the argument oh In the late 90s, um, if I'm going to have to put up with advertising, you might as well make it something that's relevant to me. Uh, and, And then we complain when the advertisers collect all this information about us. So the question isn't so much, you know, are you getting this information and then tailoring things to me? The question is, what else are you then doing with that information? What are you doing with these data? And ultimately, can they be used to harm me? Because, well, we know they can be used to harm me. The question is, are you protecting me from harm when you get my data in that manner?
1: Yeah, and I'm, and, and Kevin, I'd like to turn to, I mean, you probably have so many stories from, from the work you're doing in the universities, but I'd, I'd like to turn to the work you've done with the European Commission and mm. the EC and, and some of the things going on there. Are they looking at what can be collected, how it's collected, who can collect it, who they can share with? Tell, give us a, an overview of the scope of what they're looking at. Is it tied to specific types of algorithms or systems, or what's the scope?
0: I, I'm not sure they've got quite that far yet in what, in what I've seen. So so the way I'm involved with the commission is that the commission has these very large uh, funding drives, uh, which last for typically around seven years. Uh, they're worth billions of euros where the commission uh, funds research projects to be carried out by industry, SMEs and academia together. Uh, and they look at a variety of things, whether it's test beds for drones to um, the societal impact of AI and questions like that are uh, sort of generally being thrown up and looked at. Uh, And the role I typically play in that is coming in and saying, okay, I'll I'll look at the project and then say, what are some of the ethical challenges of this project? Uh, What are the ethical issues which get raised up by it? So if you're looking at drones, it can often be a question of, well, could the military use this technology? Are you looking at selling it to the military? And in the past, that has been problematic for the European Union because the European Union currently does not have a military mandate. Uh, it is it is a non-military body. Um, but also then questions about how are you treating people's data? Are you treating them with respect? Are you getting consent and things like that? Now, I think the question about AI and where we're going in terms of AI development, as you are, Sean, is it, something which the commission is still kind of grappling with. And still looking for how we are going to assess and determine what is ethical and what is non-ethical um, AI technological development in the future. So that, that's still under review, I guess I would say. But we're, we're getting there.
2: So let, let's go back to where it started. So, well, where you started talking about surveillance. We, we have witnessed that since the dawn of humanity, pretty much. Warfare... Of course, it give you the advantage if you know what the enemy is doing. That's that's key to succeed, <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> right? So nothing new there. But uh, we get to the point where it's okay if our country spy on the enemy to protect us. So talking about potential war, Cold War, terrorism, maintaining our way of life versus others. And... And then you cross the line where, well, as we are spying them, they're spying us. And as we are spying the enemy, we're also spying our people so that we can prevent internal terrorism to happen. September 11 and and all the Security Act are a good example of that. And and that's where the things get mixed up, right? Because how much of my privacy I'm okay to give away? for that much of security and safety? And how do I measure that? So have fun with that.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, it's it's funny you should mention war at at the same time because obviously, as you said, the history of surveillance goes back to questions about war and questions about security. Um, Some of the earliest writings talk about, you know, Watchmen and... uh, monitoring what the enemy are doing and so in my in my research one of the things i argued was that the questions that we ask about the ethics of war are very similar to the questions we should ask of surveillance so what are you doing why are you doing it is it proportionate is it discriminating between those people who um, are legitimate targets and those people who are not legitimate targets Um, is it necessary are there less intrusive or less harmful approaches that you can take other than surveillance uh, and those are the sort of questions which I was raising in my research. So I, I actually wrote a chapter in the book on um, intelligence. I've, I've got several chapters, one, one chapter on intelligence, one on domestic security, and one on policing. So you know, I treat it at some length in the book. My, my basic position on intelligence is that it is something which is necessary and actually something which is for the good of the countries involved. You know, we spy on you. We know you spy on us. Um, but that actually helps to keep a certain level of peace in the globe because we all know what, we're, what each other is up to. Um, and, and that's just broadly accepted. Now, how we should treat each other's spies when we find them, that's a different matter. And there's some interesting moral questions which can come up there about whether torture is acceptable and stuff like that, which I think uh, could lead us down into other discussions. When it comes to domestic security, as you said, then it becomes a little bit harder because then you're looking at your own population um, for... You know, if it is for security purposes, you're looking at your own population because you want to maintain security in your state, and that is one of the primary duties of the state. So, therefore, I would say that that's pretty much justified. The question is what you, the, the way in which you go about doing that. And so, I would come back to this this war analogy, where in war, you it is only ethically legitimate for you to target a combatant. You should never target a non-combatant. You shouldn't be targeting a civilian. And I argue for something fairly similar with surveillance that we should only target the liable and we should not be targeting the non-liable. And through that, you come to the conclusion that therefore you should not be engaging in any level of mass surveillance. You shouldn't be targeting everybody in society on the off chance that they might be um, a terrorist or a wrongdoer of some sort. Uh, instead, you need to have a reasonable level of suspicion based on pre-existing evidence or whatever, which can which can justify you carrying out that surveillance.
2: So, Big Brother was wrong. Yeah,
0: <laughs> I think we're fairly safe in agreement. That was that. an easy question. <laughs>
1: John you're up. You said earlier that if you lied, it was okay, right? Nobody's going to throw you in jail.
0: I didn't say it was okay. I said it wasn't illegal. Not illegal. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So, in the process, I'm
1: making a couple dots here. I remember a conversation we had where a parent told us about their kids having multiple personas on social media. And Presumably, some of those had profile settings that uh, made them older, made them live in a different place, uh, like music they didn't like, whatever, something different about themselves. And so I'm wondering, from an ethical perspective, is is it okay to have multiple personas like that and perhaps even maybe by just putting the word maliciously in this context, is it okay to maliciously put something out that isn't real that could perhaps change the outcome of surveillance, even if it is an ethical survey? Uh,
0: I, I could deal with the first one. I think I might need you to clarify that, that second question a little more. But as regards to sort of multi- multiple personas, I think if we if we imagine a social media company which doesn't require that you give honest information in creating a persona on that social media company, because I think they all do require you to be honest. Um, so let's imagine that that's not there in the contract, and so you don't have to worry about that angle. I think that we all curate the information we portray about ourselves online. Um, we all show some p- pictures of ourselves and not other pictures of ourselves. We show some meals that we've made and not other meals, uh, if, if you're into sharing photos of your meals. Um, so so we curate that information anyway and i i i don't i i can i can totally sympathize with teenagers who would want one profile for their parents and one profile for their friends i know when i was a teenager i certainly would have done that and i think it is you know i think it's a really tr- – one of the trickiest ones for me about ethical surveillance is looking at that relationship between parents and children because you can't come out with a year where you say, okay, you, you can watch your child until the age of 12 and then you can't. Um, but it's clear that for an infant, if you don't monitor that infant's behavior pretty much 24-7 that you are negligent as a parent. But by the time they're 18, if you're monitoring them 24-7, then you're creepy and getting into sort of abusive territory, if not well over into that territory. So th- there's got to be a tapering off of the levels of parental oversight over time uh, in reflection of the child growing into adulthood. But that is going to vary on the nature of the child, their maturity as they grow up, uh, become a teenager, and and trustworthiness and questions like that which become really really difficult and I think a part of that is going to be how they then act on social media as well as to what levels of surveillance are acceptable on social media but I'd say yeah if you if you want to uh, to, to connect with your kids on social media that's great but don't expect that that's the only social media profile they have I really shock students when they find out that I know <laughs> that they have a separate profile. So. <laughs>
2: but, but it's because we tend to forget, and you reminded us, you know, when we were kids, we didn't have the smartphone, at least I didn't. And uh, you expect that little wiggle room between your parents' parents. I'm sure my parents knew certain things that I didn't want them to know and they pretended not to know it. It's, it's part of growing up It's part of having your own, your privacy and developing in in a way that, that you want. Yeah, sure. Sometimes then you're going to cross the line, but if you control too much, then uh, you create even probably bigger problem anyway. So that said, and uh, of course we could talk forever about this topic, because there's not really just one topic. This is about being human in a way. But let's let's go back to the artificial intelligence and advanced technology and all of this and maybe look into the the crystal ball and w- where are we going with that? Maybe based on reality, so not just in a utopian dystopian, but based on your experience in dealing with the, the European Community Commission and, and, and at academic level to what can we really do? Instead of say, well, ideally, it should be like this. Sure. Mm, mm. I think we all agree on that. But unless you're Mr. Evil, in that case, we don't agree.
0: <laughs> but, <laughs>
2: <Yeah>. <laughs> but but in terms of what could be as technology advanced fast as it is in our life, no reason to deny it. And what can we do to at least make it moral enough? If mm. That could be the definition of it.
0: Well, I, I would say historically our relationship with morality and technology tends to be a fairly rocky one, whereby we let technology run ahead, comparatively unregulated and unhindered, until something hideous happens. Um, whether that's, you know, I've, I've got the various um, automobiles in mind here, uh, Ralph Nader's stuff on the cars that were overturning, the problem with the Ford Pinto in the 70s um, with the dubious design there. Um, and it's only when the tragedy happens that we then have a kickback and say, this is wrong, we need to introduce laws against this. And I think that the the risk is that we end up doing something similar. With technology, that we we let the technology companies go, and in a way, we're in this position already with some of the social media companies. They've been given pretty free rein, and then we've seen the errors which they which they uh, uh, generate, and then say, "Okay, this is unacceptable. We need to pull back a little bit on this." So, I don't think it's ideal. I don't. Th- I, I don't think it's as high to say this is an ideal. I think this is realistic that we can come out with frameworks we can come out with guidelines for um, self-regulation. But I think we also need to be looking at legislation as well to see where legislation is possible, where legislation is realistic, and where we can have legislation that protects the citizens but doesn't um, restrict the development of the technology. So I want to see the technology develop but in an ethical way. And so with things like machine learning, where we're drawing on data sets, yeah, fantastic, use those data sets, but make sure those data sets are populated by people, who, people who've given permission for their data to be used in that way. People who knew what the risks were uh, as much as anyone can in sharing their data. Uh, don't just get data sets that have been collected from somewhere in the world where they've been forcibly extracted from people along, along the way.
1: Yeah, and I, I think it's a delicate balance here, of course. and as we, as we wrap, Kevin, there, there was one thing we discussed at the very beginning, which was if, if we are, if the ethical are being ethical and the unethical are doing whatever they want, <laughs> do the ethical run the risk of, of uh, being overrun by the unethical? And uh, so I, I asked that, and maybe as a final thought from you is in the context of your policy, do do we overall have a good view of what the risks are in and, and the scenarios such that we can actually say this is right and this is wrong with AI, or, or are we just kind of flying
0: blind? I think there's an extent to which, yes, we are flying blind. Um, I think we are becoming more aware of the risks. I think that as time goes on, we will become aware of more risks. Um, and, and, of course, who is aware is a, is a question as well. So I remember writing about bias in AI um, in 2012. And at the time, I thought, well, wow, everything that needs to be said about bias and algorithms has been said. There's nothing new to add to that. And, of course, subsequently, we've seen those algorithms flourish and, and be used. And then we've got had you know, really significant books like Cathy um, O'Neill's Weapons of Math Destruction that has just charted all of this uh sort of the errors that have come out so even when we know about some of these issues getting them out into public consciousness and getting them out into the public debate is, is something which needs to happen These regards to letting the that sort of fear about letting the bad guys win is something which i've you know encountered on on several occasions it's an obvious concern with security should we you know, do we, should we be ethical in our security? Because if we're being ethical in our security, that might mean that our security is not as good as it might otherwise be. And I think it's just worth reflecting that the total security uh, where we, you know, just say, okay, security is the one and only thing is, is also known as a police state. And that's not somewhere where most of us want to go. By the contrast, total liberty, you know, you kind of imagine the purge, but on a 24 seven rotor. And we don't want to be there either. So the the question about how ethical should we be and the fear about letting the bad guys through is itself an ethical question, which involves weighing these values, the values of security, the values of privacy and liberty, and a lot of these kind of things. And remembering in that mix that the reason we value Security is because it secures our liberties and it secures the other things that we value. Um, and likewise that we are prepared to sacrifice our security sometimes, such as in times of war, uh, in order to fight for our liberties. So it's not an easy continuum between the two. It's a very complex Gordian knot of values that we that we find and where pe- different people value or d- put different weightings on those values. And this is why, as I say, it really needs to be in the public, in the public domain and the public discussion. And I think that's something where people with that that technological experience who know some of the dangers have a responsibility in, in making, communicating what those issues are to the public in a way that develops that public conversation, develops that debate, because far rather that we resolve it now before the crises happen than we find ourselves in 10 years' time going, you know, what, what hath man wrought <laughs> and uh, and having to crawl back the uh, the, the ground that was been lost.
2: Yeah, it, it comes down to who makes the decision in the end, and, and it's kind of a social contract where you try to make the best decision for the majority of the people. Somebody's not going to be happy anyway. That's democracy <laughs> for you. <laughs> and uh, and and really, uh, it comes down to knowledge is power. Meaning, if you want to empower yourself and have a public, uh, you know, the public opinion to have something to say into it, you really need to at least understand the basic. And as many times we say. When you operate a computer or drive a car or whatever, you don't need to know how it really works, but you need to have the basic of what what it does so mm-hmm. if we can empower at least the public opinion and not just leave the decision to some you know somebody sitting on on a throne
0: <laughs> yeah yeah and you're right because if we don't if we don't empower the public, then the decision will be left to that person on a throne. Um, And that that person on the throne is going to have vested interests. And it's only through the democratic debate where you bring – sure, you've got people with vested interests, but on both sides of the equation. And therefore, you you get a more balanced – debate coming out of it rather than it being decided for us so we 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 are fortunately at least the three of us i don't know who else is listening to the podcast but the, th- the three of us, a lot of people <laughs> <laughs> the three of us speaking right now are fortunate enough to live in democracies and so i think we need to make the most of being in those democracies and, and having our voices heard
1: absolutely yeah most definitely and I, I think this is a good good way to wrap with uh, knowledge is power uh we we as individuals, we shouldn't sit back and hope somebody else is going to solve this problem for mm-hmm. us. I think we all need to have some understanding, as, as Marco noted. And uh, one good way to do that, Marco, checking out uh, the Ethics of Surveillance book from our guest. Of Kevin course. Finished. <laughs> but have a good read of that. Uh, and don't stop there. Keep, uh, keep reading, keep learning, and uh, participate. I guess the other thing I'd say.
2: Absolutely. That's the power of democracy, participation. We tend to forget that. And uh, we invite too, everybody to participate, to share, to read more about, uh, again, the book. And there will be notes in the podcast and in the article on magazine.com and links to whatever Kevin you want to share with us. Uh, they will be there. Resources, notes, other paper you've written, uh, happy, I'm sure some people want to Get deeper and deeper.
0: Great. So, thank you one. very much. Yeah. Thank you. Well, thank you. thank you again for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure. Blue Lava is the first business platform for CISOs to manage their security program. Blue Lava guides security leaders to effectively measure, optimize, and communicate their security program with confidence and ease in one platform. Learn more at bluelava.net. Nintex is the global standard for business process management and automation. The Nintex platform helps their clients accelerate progress on their digital transformation journeys by quickly and easily managing, automating, and optimizing business processes. Learn more at nintex.com.